you would, open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll look at a story, in fact, we'll be a little bit all over First and 2 Samuel a bit here as we begin. But let me pray, and then let's look at God's Word together. Father, we do thank you, uh, Lord, for the time, for yet, Lord, another day that we can honor you. Lord, I pray that would be our desire as we look for ways to reflect your Son, I reflect Christ's likeness, Lord, in uh, the way we live our lives. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. Have you ever been given a gift that you do not deserve? If your answer is no, then that's a really weird answer. <laughs> think about it. Have you ever been given something that you do not deserve? You can look at where you're sitting even now. Do you deserve a private Christian education? Deserve. It's an interesting word. It's a word that actually has a lot of impact on the way you're going to live, not only your life now, but the rest of your life. It affects the way you view presents, birthdays, Christmases, because if you go into them thinking, absolutely, I'm special and I deserve everything that I have been given, you're never going to understand what is preached to you every week. You're never going to understand the gospel truths of the Bible in God's nature, because you won't understand it until you understand that not one of us deserves anything. And in fact, as you read scripture, the reality very early in Genesis is we deserve one thing, which is we've sinned against God. We deserve judgment and death. And there's a way in which I think when you grasp that theologically and practically, you're going to become a much more thankful person. You're going to start to understand what this Christianity thing, what this gospel these people are talking about really means for you and for your life. You're going to start to go, okay, if I don't get into the college that I want, if I get a unfair speeding ticket, or if I get, you know, cracked down on by a teacher and I think it's unfair, and you have a moment of perspective where you can zoom out and go, but in light of God's grace, that I deserve sin, judgment, and hell, and yet his son came and died for me, that I might have life, you know what? Maybe not getting into the college I want isn't the worst thing. In fact, you still have things to be thankful for. The word gift in scripture is the same word for grace. So we talk about God's grace, we're talking about God's gift. Grace, gift. What I want to do in our short time, and it seems the longer uh, you preach, uh, as far as the older you get, it seems like the shorter time is. Um, but in our short time, we're going to look at a story. So if you like stories, and I think everyone does, I think this will be an encouragement to you in the Old Testament. One of the great things about the Old Testament is we have so much in narrative that we can learn about God's nature. And so we're going to look at 2 Samuel 9 here, and the story about David and his best friend's grandson. This is a story about King David in the Old Testament. So the king who is known as a man after God's own heart. 
throughout 1 Samuel, there's this kind of tension. Israel wants a king. Now, them wanting a king isn't so bad. But them, in the way they ask, and the fact that they want a king that looks like all the other nations, is wrong and is bad, and they're chastised. In fact, the prophet at the time, Samuel, is offended because he feels rejected. And God says to Israel, Samuel, yes, you've been my prophet, but don't feel bad. It's not that they've rejected you. They're rejecting me. They no longer want God as a king. They no longer want his law as their rule. They want a king that looks like all the other kings. So they find one. God appoints and says, fine, you want a king like all the other nations? I'll give you one. And he gives them Saul. Saul is everything you would expect a king to be in a worldly sense. Saul is tall. He is handsome. He looks the part. At least externally. Internally, he is not a king after God's own heart. In fact, it says multiple times in Scripture that he does not seek the Lord. He doesn't ever seek after God. In fact, because of that, God takes the kingdom from him and he anoints a new king, one whom is going to love God like one after God's very own heart. Well, as you can imagine, that's a problem because you have a king who does not want to step off the throne while yet God has appointed a new king. But there's an interesting relationship that develops in this story between the king, Saul, and his son, Jonathan, and the future king, David. In fact, background-wise, if you go a little bit back to 1 Samuel 18, you learn a little bit of a snapshot of their relationship. Verse 1 of chapter 18 says this, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Cue kind of the dun-dun-dun music because you'll see in the following verses. David is blessed. He challenges. Saul is jealous. And then is going to proceed to try to kill David. What is so unique about this relationship is who's the worldly sense? Who's going to inherit the throne of Israel? It's Jonathan. That's the worldly rightful heir. Yet he says, I look and I see and I know God has blessed you. In fact, you'll see that again, not only a few chapters later where he protects David. And he says, I know God has made a covenant with you. Jonathan chooses to be on God's side, and by that, you see even symbolically, he takes off his robe and says, you are the rightful king. That is a pretty amazing thing. That's not something you would see. Would you give up kingship? Would you give up all the vast wealth and say, I'm going to give it to this person? Jonathan does it willingly. He understands 
God is on his side. In chapter 20, he warns him. Because of that, they make a covenant together in chapter 20. Go to chapter 20, verse 12. This is all kind of background, so this is going to be important. It says, And Jonathan said to David, verse 12 of chapter 20, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed, well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? That is, I'm going to betray my father, the king, to protect you. But should it please my father to do harm, the Lord to do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast, and we'll see this again in our chapter, the steadfast or hesed love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan gets, guess who's the biggest enemy he has? Not so much the Philistines as his dad, Saul. So verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And there they make a covenant together. And that's going to be important. What's this love based on? It's based on a covenant they actually made together. A commitment to follow. So fast forward, God's promises are true. Saul is not going to reign forever. He's going to be cut off because of his sin. His sin is so great towards the end of 1 Samuel, he ends up actually killing pretty much all the priests except for the one that runs away to join David. So Saul is cut off, his family is cut off. Jonathan and Saul die in battle, and his son Ishbosheth becomes the king of Israel, and ultimately, he is cut off as well, except for, go to 2 Samuel chapter 4, Ishbosheth has a son. So this is the grandson of Jonathan. Verse 4, as Ishbosheth is murdered, it says, verse 4, that Jonathan, the son of Saul, who's been dead now for a number of years, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came or from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name is Mephibosheth. We're going to call him Mel, just so you know. We're going to make it simple. Mel is a five-year-old. They run because guess what? When there is a king change in any kingdom at this point, it is bloody. This is not American history. This is where there are bloody changes of rule and reign. So they flee because guess what? They're coming for Ishbosheth's children so that there's no threat to the future kingdom. So they run. He falls. His legs probably are broken where we might in our modern day set it or put it, some type of rod in. He doesn't get that treatment and he is unable to walk the rest of his life. And we don't hear anything else. In fact, that story, when you read it in that chapter 4, you kind of go, why is this here? 
Well, when you come to chapter 9, you understand here that this is going to be an example that God is going to use to show not only God's grace, but to show that David is not like Saul. Saul would have none of this. Saul would absolutely destroy any and every threat. Saul would not show grace. Saul would not keep a covenant. But David is not like Saul. David is a man after God's own heart. And so we're going to see how he displays God's grace here in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. Look with me there. David now has established his kingdom. He's brought 6 and 7. He's brought the kingdom to kind of this united front where it's now in Jerusalem where he's reigning from. He's victorious. And I'd say chapter 9 here is a high point because David's not perfect and you're going to see some of his faults in the next coming chapters. But here is a high point of David. It says in chapter 9, he has this question now that things have settled. This is 15, 20 years later. Things are settled. Whatever happened? Is there anyone left of the line of the house of Saul? Why? Because he wants to show them kindness. Verse 1 says, David asks this question. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Now that answer may, he may come to regret this answer, because David's going to test that and then see if, well, are you still my servant when I take everything from you? So Ziba says, I'm your servant. And the king says, verse 3, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet, something we're reminded of multiple times. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Not a nice place. Lodabar simply means no pasture. So if you're from a place called no pasture, it's like saying you're from a place called no water. Not a nice place where he is. Then, verse 5, the king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Mel at Lodabar. And Mel, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mel. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. See what I said earlier? Ziba's probably going, hmm, I don't know if I really want to be David's servant. Now Ziba, it says, had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so, so will your servant do. So Mel ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mel had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house 
became Meshiva uh, Mel's servants. So Mel lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And then the reminder, now he was lame in his feet. So you look at this story. It's really a loving story of compassion and love for a friend towards his now grandson. Is he showing kindness to Mel because of who he is or what he has done? No, he's showing him kindness because of Jonathan, but particularly because of the covenant that David made with Jonathan. I just want to pull a few things out of this that you can maybe take away, which is one, God's grace, as David displays it, David being a prototype as you look forward to the son of David who will reign forever, Jesus himself, God shows his grace through covenant. When you see the steadfast love, the hesed, the covenant made back in 1 Samuel 20, and then this hesed love that David wants to show towards Jonathan's grandson, it is all based on this covenant. God shows his love through covenant. God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. He's going to one day, he said, I will, yes, Adam, it's going to be difficult to till the earth. Yes, Eve, childbearing is going to be painful, but I will bring about one of your seed who's going to crush the serpent's head. Yes, the serpent may bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. We know that ultimately, yes, Christ is bruised. Yes, he dies, thinking last Friday, but he ultimately rises again and crushes the serpent's head. God makes a covenant with Noah. He says, I'm never going to flood the earth the way I have done before. God makes a covenant with Abraham, where he says, I am going to bless you and your descendants. In fact, through your descendants, I'm going to bless all of the nations. One of which, as a Gentile, I am a partaker in because... Through Christ, all the nations are blessed. God makes a covenant with David. Just two chapters before, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel says, I will make a covenant with you, David. That's actually worth your time looking at because it's fascinating. Because chapter 6, David acts out in sin. He basically creates a parade and pushes out, tries to use in the worst way this kind of religious pomp and circumstance to promote himself. Ultimately, one is killed who reaches out and touches the ark. And David is angry because he doesn't know what God is doing and God is, why God is angry. And it's very clear God is angry because, David, you're not obeying the way God has commanded you to obey. And I would even say more so, he's not ready yet to be given the covenant of chapter 7 that one of David's sons will reign on the throne forever which ultimately is going to be Christ. But the ultimate covenant that God makes is, guess what? This old covenant he makes with Israel, the one even we think of as the one at Mount Sinai, that covenant doesn't work, right? Is Israel a model of repentance? Is Israel a model of salvation? Not if you read too far. Israel has its moments. David has his moments. This is one of them. 
The kingdom's united. Things are going well. And his son Solomon, it's going to be going the best it will ever go. Where people come and are amazed at Israel and the riches and the wisdom of Solomon. Until, just like in Judges, they fall into sin, they worship idols, and they fall away and they stop worshiping God. Ultimately, cast into exile, cast into judgment. The old covenant, not working. So what does God say? He says, I will make a new covenant, which in that new covenant, he makes with who? In essence, he makes it with himself. He covenants with Christ himself that he is going to redeem a people for his name's sake. And each one of us can be partakers of that new covenant through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's grace is distributed through covenant. But that grace is described, I think, by, we'll give it two descriptors, which is God's grace is unexpected, one, and two, God's grace is extravagant. So yes, God's grace is distributed through covenants, but also, by its nature, it is unexpected, and it is extravagant. In what way is it unexpected? It is unexpected because we are sinners. This goes to the undeserved portion of the gospel. And you'll never understand the gospel unless you come to a place of humility where you say, I don't deserve salvation yet Romans 5 says while we were sinners Christ died for us he doesn't die for good people he dies for enemies we're enemies that he dies for while we were sinners Christ died for us that is unexpected you might expect Someone to die for someone who is good. But for someone who is not, someone who is wicked, someone who is your enemy, think of someone you go, I don't like that person that much. You probably don't want to open the door for them. You don't want to probably sacrifice your time for them. And you definitely don't want to die for them. But such is God's love that he would die for sinners. God's grace is unexpected. Now think about our story here. How it is displayed here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Look at how God's grace, or in this sense, David's grace, how unexpected is it? Radically unexpected. David is unlike any king that has ruled before. I guarantee you there's no king like him. No one lets a threat like Jonathan's son, grandson, and now great-grandson Micah, live. You don't do that. David's different. He's a man after God's own heart. What does Mel bring to the table? As we're reminded multiple times in the text, he brings absolutely nothing but, I would say, humility, which is what we found here as he addresses him at the end of verses 7 and eight. 
rightfully, David says, do not fear because I guarantee you this man is afraid. He thinks, that's it. Ziba sold me out. David's coming finally. Now that he's established his kingdom, he's going to get rid of the final threats to his kingdom. He's going to kill me. How shocked do you think Mel is then when the opposite happens? And David says, verse 7, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table for a week, for a day. He says, always you will eat at my table. Well, what does he do? What does what does Mel do? He simply pays homage, humility, and says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That's a pretty good gospel response to God's grace to us that you go, Lord, I don't deserve any of it. Why do you grant such grace? And if you ask me, Pastor, theologian, why does God show grace to sinners? I give you no other answer. I don't know other than it's in his nature and character. It's something that as a human I don't fully understand because God is not like me. And praise the Lord that he isn't like me, that he shows grace even to his enemies. This is unexpected. He brings nothing. He can't even work his own fields. This man is crippled. Yet God shows him grace. It's not only grace that is shown in unexpected ways, but lastly here, real quickly, is it's extravagant. He doesn't just invite him to go, hey, all right, I'm going to give you all of your land back, all of Saul's, you know, stocks, all of his holdings, all of his land, all of his money. It's back to you and to your generation, to your family. He doesn't say that. In fact, he goes far above that. He says, in fact, you're going to come, you're going to eat. I love this verse 11. The second half there, which says, so, wrapping up the story, Mel ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. This is where he not only gave back an established Mel, that he is now the owner of the things that were Saul's, but he says, no, I even will do more than that. And I will invite you to the king's table and I will treat you as a son. That's exactly what God does in the gospel through Christ. That's the invitation that you hear. We're at a Christian school. You're going to hear all the time. It's God saying, I am willing to forgive. I am willing to love you. In fact, not only am I willing to forgive your sin, I'm actually willing to be reconciled to you, to make you not only a friend, but Ephesians says an heir. That you be treated as God's own son. And so we're called to repent of our sin and believe that Christ lived perfectly for us, that he died a perfect death and defeated death by being raised from the dead. That's what God has called us to. But this is a beautiful picture, you see, of what he's doing and what it really looks like. Sometimes we think, well, we deserve it. This is a story that illustrates it's better, which is you don't deserve it. Yet God shows you grace and mercy and love. You go to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. It's homework and you read. He says that 
through Christ. He has given us every spiritual blessing. We are partakers in the riches of God. How rich is God? Don't worry, his bank account's not going to run out. It's not like, oh, he only has so much grace, only so much love, only so much to give. No, God is not like that. He is infinite, and his love is infinite, and he gives it freely to those who come to his table. There's a beautiful response here in the reality of what does Mel do? He's crippled. Can he walk? Can he get up? Can he run? Can he serve? Can he give back? No. But what he does do is what we are called to do, which is he can humbly look to the Savior and believe. He comes in a posture of humility and he believes. And that's all the king asked and that's all that God asked for us. And the question that we simply are left with is, will you embrace God's invitation, God's love, to come to eat at the king's table? Let's pray. Father, thank you for... The time that we can even see what a great picture that you have given in scripture. What a great image that we have of one who is crippled who can do nothing. Lord, that is our spiritual state apart from you. Ephesians says we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Lord, we need you to resurrect our hearts. Lord, there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing here that Mel could do. You don't ask us to do anything. Our good deeds are like filthy rags. No, your grace is a free gift that is given. Lord, all you ask is that we look to the cross that we believe. Lord, I pray that even those here would hear that call or that we would see again your love for us and believe. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.